This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today. Our guest is Melvin Goodman, and Melvin is an intelligence community um veteran and whistleblower who has a book out on that very topic on whistleblower at the cia an insider's account of the politics of intelligence and melvin um, goodman thank you for joining us Uh, my pleasure good to be with you now um your career is spans um a number of years um you you actually have experience both with the department of defense and state as well as the CIA. Why don't you kind of walk us through you know, and kind of a quick overview of your years with the government? Well, you look at it as a 42-year career. That includes three years in the United States Army as a cryptographer. Uh, from there, yeah. after in Greece? School, I was in Athens, Greece at the military yeah. mission. And from there, I went to school, graduate school, got my PhD from Indiana University, uh, and the Russian and East European Institute uh, certificate as well. I joined the CIA in 1966. Uh, I resigned from the CIA in 1990 because of the politicization of intelligence under William Casey and Robert Gates, and then taught at the National War College. Taught at the National War College for nearly uh, 20 years, but uh, resigned from the National War College over the invasion of Iraq. Uh, in 2003, and also I served at the State Department and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research for a couple of years in the 1970s. So I have a good overall uh, experience and understanding of the intelligence community uh, from the standpoint of CIA, the Department of State, and the Department of uh, Defense, and I know where the problems are and the attempt to deal with that was the whistleblower book. I wrote an earlier book on the failure of intelligence in 2008, but the whistleblower book is much more personal, 
deals not only with the politicization of intelligence at uh, the CIA, but the Senate Intelligence Committee hearings, which were highly politicized and partisan in 1991. And I only mention that because we're going through another period of politicization of the intelligence community and also the Senate Judiciary Committee when you look at the investigation of the Russian hacking and the possibility of a Trump connection to the Russian role. And, so and I have a good overall view of the situation. And, and currently, you're you're at John Hopkins Sice. Uh, I teach at uh, not Sice. I teach at John oh. Hopkins University, uh, where I got my bachelor's degree. And I'm also a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, and I'm the national security correspondent for Counterpunch. dot uh, org. So I keep my hand in on these matters. And so to go back in time, you first start working at the CIA from 60, in 66, and you were there from 66 74, um, and then you went to the Bureau of Intelligence and went Bureau back. Intelligence and Research at the State Department, right. Right, and then you went back to the CIA in 76. So you talk about politicization of the CIA, and you really, in terms of its... Um, output of information. You know, there are two aspects of CIA. I think the first is kind of whether the CIA getting into covert actions, and you know that is what was kind of covered by the Church Commission. And can you can you kind of walk us through what you know, and give us a, a kind of a USA summary of the Church Commission? Well, it's important to separate the world of intelligence analysis from the world of operations. What the Church uh, Committee did in the mid-1970s because of the crimes that were committed by the CIA and the National Security Agency and the FBI, for that matter, during the Vietnam War, because under the Operation COINTELPRO, uh, you had uh, mail probes, you had uh, massive surveillance of telephone communications. Some of the same issues we're dealing with today because of the revelations of Edward Snowden. Uh, And the deeper that Church got into this, and with the work of good journalists, particularly uh, Seymour Hersh of the New York uh, Times, uh, the Church uh, Committee, and particularly the staffers, found evidence of political assassination and regime change. Uh, And because of their work, you had the creation of the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, uh, correcting a serious blunder in American political process because you created secret agencies with no oversight uh, was created in 1947 with no oversight whatsoever so for the first time you had oversight and i think for the first 15 years you had legitimate oversight but under david boren uh in the early 1990s particularly the nomination of uh, bob gates who never should have been confirmed as a cia director you had the senate intelligence committee becoming rather partisan and this worsened under arlen specter who was the uh, chairman of the committee in the 1990s, and and today you have a totally uh, politicized intelligence committee under Richard Burr from North Carolina, and and this is a real setback. And and so I mentioned Church just as a touchstone point because a lot of people, when they think about the CIA, they, they think about those type of actions. But we're talking here about the politicization, as you mentioned, of analysis. And you actually point out, I've heard, you know, that, for example, in Vietnam, the, the CIA's analysis was not politicized. And it was basically said, this is, is this, you're walking into a disaster. But then slowly. Well, you go back to the Pentagon Papers uh, that Daniel Ellsberg is responsible for, uh, a very prominent whistleblower. 
the annexes contain the Central Intelligence Agency's uh, estimates on Vietnam, and the CIA made it clear that this was a no-win situation, that this was a civil war, uh, essentially, that uh, the enemy had uh, sanctuary, and we've never defeated an insurgency where there was a sanctuary. Look at the current problem in Afghanistan, where there's a sanctuary in Pakistan. And the CIA warned very effectively uh, of all of that, but the intelligence was ignored. Uh, McNamara, Secretary of Defense, did his best to squelch good intelligence. There was a very good analysis being done at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research uh, in the 1960s, for that matter. And McNamara uh, leaned on Dean Russ, the Secretary of State, to make sure that analysis was squelched and never got out of the building. So it's not that the evidence wasn't there. It's not that policymakers weren't aware of what was going on. And one of my problems with the Ken Burns series on Vietnam, which is very effective on many levels, uh, he talks about good people who were trying to make the correct decisions. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, these were, were lies that led to the Vietnam decisions. These were total distortions. In some cases, intelligence made up out of whole cloth. The real intelligence was ignored by the policymakers. And so, but you, your office was getting it right. It's just you know, the policymakers weren't drawing the right conclusions or they were trying to suppress it. But then under Casey, um, who had been prominent in the Reagan campaign, and he was Reagan's first CIA director. You you claim that the, that's when the actual analysis itself began to get politicized. That's when politicization was institutionalized because you had a CIA director who essentially was an ideologue, William Casey, and you had a president who wanted to increase defense spending in peacetime uh, like no other president uh, had ever done or has ever done uh, since. And for Reagan to get his defense increases through, he needed to have a threat. He needed an enemy. And Bill Casey and Bob Gates cooperated by trying to create a Soviet Union that was 10 feet tall. And of course, the irony of this situation is this was done throughout the 1980s when the Soviet Union was essentially coming apart like a house of cards, only to collapse totally in 1991. So you had a total intelligence failure at the CIA because intelligence was politicized. There were several of us who had it right. We didn't know the Soviet Union was going to collapse, but we knew it was weakening. Uh, And in 1986, I figured I had had enough in tilting at these windmills from Casey and Gates and the Reagan administration. Uh, So that's when I went over to the National War College to start teaching uh, my specialty in international relations. Now, your relationship with Gates is is an important part of not only your career there, but also your book. And you you took out um, Gates on his first day of the office for lunch. Uh, I joined the CIA in 66. Bob came along in 68, and I'd made it a habit of taking new people uh, to lunch. And I remember coming back after that lunch and telling my colleagues I've just met the most ambitious person I've ever encountered in my lifetime and have a feeling we'll be working for him at some point. What I didn't realize is how, how soon this would be because by 1981, he became the deputy director for intelligence because he had insinuated himself with uh, Bill Casey. And this is a very close relationship. So you really had the, it was like Geppetto and Pinocchio. Uh, you had Casey, who wanted the intelligence politicized, and you had uh, Gates, who was a windsock or a filter for carrying out uh, this assignment. But up until the late 70s, uh, Bob and I had a very uh, close uh, relationship. There was a social relationship between uh, the families. Uh, so the parting 
was due to substantive differences, real differences over how intelligence was supposed to be dealt with. And, and my accusation against Bob was that he lacked uh, a moral compass uh, on these issues. So that's when the falling out took place. And this was not a small falling out. You actually testified against his nomination to be, what was the nomination you testified against him on? In 1991, he was nominated by George H.W. Bush to be the CIA <clears throat> director. And I was the leading witness against that confirmation. And so, uh, obviously, that could not have gone well, I imagine. And, and so it also puts you at odds within the community, I imagine. Well, I found out uh, how naive I was about what whistleblowing is all about and how you do isolate yourself. So I lost a lot of friends within the community. It was the kind of controversy that people working in the intelligence community, particularly the CIA, didn't want uh, to deal with in, in public. Uh, and it's a, it's a rather lonely existence out there. When you look behind you to, as you're leading the way in terms of this whistleblowing um, and trying to stop the confirmation, you realize there aren't many people in back of you. And and so, in writing this book, what, what what was it that led you to write this book? Well, I think the final straw for me in terms of becoming a whistleblower was uh, when I was returning from Moscow in 1991. I had taken the National War College delegation there every year starting in 1986, and I immediately... Uh, tried to pick up a New York Times because I hadn't seen one for three weeks being in the Soviet Union where you couldn't get a New York Times. And on the front page, the lead story was Bush's nomination of uh, Bob Gates to be CIA director. So at that point, I knew that uh, I had to go public with my issues against Bob Gates because it would have been completely cynical to ignore the damage that he had done at the CIA in the 1980s. As for the book itself, uh, actually, this was the idea of a senior editor at City Lights, where I published my previous book on national insecurity and the cost of American militarism. Uh, the senior editor felt that I had a very good uh, story to tell. And I said, well, what, what story is that? And his response was kind of interesting, that here you are, someone who has been in the intelligence community for several decades and obviously believed in the role of intelligence. Uh, why did you become a whistleblower? But in writing the book and thinking about the book, I realized I was probably a contrarian all my life. And I think to be a good intelligence officer and a good intelligence analyst, you have to be a bit of a contrarian, that you have to have a bit of a, a dissident spirit in you. And I think what I had in addition to that is a very anti-authoritarian uh, mindset. So the idea for the book came from City Lights, uh, but the account is uh, my personal story. And And so... Given that the idea to be a good analyst requires a certain kind of uh, contrarian viewpoint, how is that played out within the, the the analyst community at the CIA? And I mean, how do you reach consensus if you have a team of contrarians? Well, it's very difficult to reach consensus. And one of the fascinating things about uh, the CIA, and remember, I came to the CIA from an academic experience. I was in Indiana University. I was involved in the teaching movement against the Vietnam War when I was at uh, Indiana. But when I got to CIA, I found the debates on Vietnam, for example, were far more intense and far more uh, significant and substantive than anything I'd experienced on an academic uh, community. So yes, you have very strong-willed people, and you have contrarian types who are willing to uh, challenge 
conventional wisdom. I think what you need to do in the intelligence community, and it's not easy to come to these conclusions. So when national intelligence estimates are written, such as the ones on Vietnam in the 1960s, uh, you leave a lot of blood on the floor uh, in these battles. These, these are battles that are waged in a very uh, personal and passionate way. The problem is when you have CIA directors who come in, particularly those who come from uh, the Congress, when I think of the, some of the worst CIA directors, the ones who politicize intelligence, three came from Capitol Hill, and all three of them worked to politicize intelligence. That would be Porter Goss under George Bush. It would be George Tenet under both Bill Clinton and, and George Bush. And, of course, the current CIA director, a former congressman, Tea Party congressman from Kansas, Mike Pompeo, is a, a, a huge disaster on the level of his willingness to politicize intelligence. And and why do you say that? I think on the Hill, this is uh, a, a political process where you follow the lead of your masters. You don't you don't get a great deal of challenge uh, on the Hill, uh, particularly on national security matters. You know, look at the way the Congress has gone away with the misuse of the military over the past seventeen years. Uh, look at the inability of the Congress to really inform themselves. Uh, with regard to uh, Russian hacking and the inability of investigations to really get underway in any meaningful way. Uh, this is a, a culture, to me, of um, uh, complicity, uh, in a sense. I'm not talking about the complicity of silence, but just the, the complicity of a good old boy network uh, that doesn't want to challenge conventional wisdom. In the intelligence community, you have just the opposite. You have a strong moral compass on the ability to recognize that truth is elusive, but you're committed to trying to find it. Right. Uh, and that's why, you, that's why you have intelligence. This is what Harry Truman wanted when he created the CIA in 1947, and he made it clear with his own notes that he didn't want the CIA to become a cloak and dagger organization. He was appalled by what Eisenhower and Kennedy did to the CIA. Eisenhower's uh, willingness to overthrow the democratic government of Iran in 1953, and of course Kennedy's uh, role uh, leading up to the Bay of Pigs, the efforts to overthrow Fidel Castro, that actually started under Eisenhower, but culminated under John Kennedy. And this is exactly what Harry Truman didn't want, but now we're getting further and further from Truman's mission and idea and concept of the CIA, because you have a very militarized organization. And look what's happening under Pompeo, the increased use of the military, uh, or, or the increased use of the CIA in military matters in Afghanistan, uh, for example, and the efforts to politicize intelligence on the comprehensive plan of action with Iran, a very important disarmament agreement that uh, Trump is committed to terminating. And the CIA director is doing his best to give him intelligence to help him make that decision to terminate the agreement, which would be a disaster for the interests of the United States. So you need the intelligence community to try to keep this uh, process honest as honest as uh, possible. But if people aren't willing to read intelligence and take it seriously, which happened in the 1960s during Vietnam, or you have a CIA that's too willing to distort intelligence, which happened in the 1980s regarding the Soviet Union, and then of course the worst was going to war with phony intelligence on Iraq and weapons of mass destruction in 2003. And that was when George Tenet, the CIA director, told the president George Bush, it would be a slam dunk. Those were his words. It would be a slam dunk to give the president the intelligence to take the Amer to the American people to convince them of the need for war. Interesting um, so terms for a vertically challenged <laughs> person. <laughs> but um, 
I just want to go back and kind of put a coda on one thing you were saying about um, Truman. Your statements about the role, Truman's view of the role of the CIA and why it was founded, you know, aren't just you know, your assessment. It's you've actually read Truman's notes at the Library of Independence. Yeah, I gave a lecture at the Truman Library to probably two years ago. They were doing a an exhibit during uh, the archive of materials on the intelligence communities. It was called uh, Spies, Lies, and Paranoia, you know, Truman and the CIA. And after the talk, which went over very well at the library, the, Nash, the head archivist at the library called me in and gave me a copy of the note in Truman's own hand. It was written in December of 1963. It eventually became uh, an op-ed article for the Washington Post uh, maligning essentially what Eisenhower and Kennedy had done to the CIA, making it clear that he wanted the CIA to provide intelligence to policymakers uh, to avoid the problems of what happened in 1941 when we had good information on Japanese plans to use their military against the United States. Uh, and this intelligence didn't get in the hands of the right people. So he looked at the CIA, and the importance was the word central in terms of a central intelligence agency, which made sure that intelligence collection and analysis got to the right uh, people. And as I mentioned earlier, what he didn't want, and he said this in his own hand, I don't want this to be a cloak and dagger organization. Well, if you look at the history of the CIA, it's been dominated by cloak and dagger uh, efforts. Not that they were designed by the CIA, because if you look at all the horrors of the CIA, I think of the uh, Operation Ajax against Iran in 53, or the Bay of Pigs with regard to Cuba in 61, or the killing of Lumumba and the led to the emergence of Mobutu, the worst tyrant in the hist- modern history. Uh, these were all White House-inspired ideas. Uh, the operation against Chile in the 1970s and the overthrow of Allende and the emergence of Pinochet. This was Nixon and, and Kissinger giving orders to a CIA director, Richard Helms, who then lied to the Congress about the CIA's role uh, in, in Chile. Uh, and probably should have gone to jail for, for these lies. Uh, so the CIA has, uh, when you look at covert action, uh, CIA has been responsible for tremendous amounts of strategic uh, failure, but all at the direction of the White House. So where Church was wrong, and I talked to Frank Church about this uh, after the hearings, and he admitted he was wrong when he said the CIA was a rogue elephant out of control. And no, the, the CIA was an elephant under the control of the White House. So when you look at what he called rogue behavior, this was CIA-ordered uh, to commit these actions and these policies by presidents and their national security advisors. That is where the real problem is. They were out of control. Well, it was White House. Uh, I love the title of David Halberstam's one, uh, Vietnam, the best and the brightest. These were the best and the brightest. Under Johnson, it was the Rostow brothers. Under Kennedy, it was the Bundy brothers. Sort of, the, you know, the New England right. patrician uh, establishment uh, that had no idea what war was about, but committed the United States to war uh, to uh, to much greater degree, uh, and then committed the CIA to these covert actions and to these acts of political assassination. And Church, to his credit, this is what he was trying to stop. He was trying to limit the use of the CIA in his fashion, and it's, at one point, political assassination uh, was banned. 
And of course, the horrors of the Phoenix program were interesting because the Phoenix program in Vietnam, which led to the killing of a lot of innocent people, was directed by William Colby, who then became a CIA director, who shared a lot of the sensitive information with Church's committee to the horror of people like Henry Kissinger uh, and others. But I think Colby had about his work in Phoenix and was trying to get this history right and save the CIA by admitting to all the uh, errors and transgressions and crimes of the past. I find it's interesting what's happening today because yesterday we were supposed to get the, uh, the Kennedy. release of all the documents on the Kennedy assassination. And when I lectured in Santa Monica uh, several months ago, uh, I got a lot of questions because Santa Monica is fascinated by the assassination and the conspiracy theories surrounding the assassination of Kennedy. And I said, don't expect all of these documents to be released because the CIA is still going to protect all of the embarrassing information it still holds. And now they've gotten another six months to make their case. Um, they've been granted that six months. Uh, and I think we're going to see cover up of very sensitive materials. Well, we don't have six months to do a commercial, so we're going to do one now. Um, but when we come back, we'll have more on Mel Goodman's whistleblower at the CIA after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. There are those who dedicate themselves to a sense of honor, to a life of courage, and a commitment to something greater than themselves. They have always defended this nation and each other. They still do. The few, the proud, the Marines. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Mel Goodman. He's the author of Whistleblower at the CIA. And uh, I'd like to give you a quote um, that was provided um, in relation to the book. It's from Lawrence Wilkerson. He's the former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. And he said that Mel Goodman's whistleblower at the CIA confirmed for me what my own experience had revealed during six hectic days and sleepless nights at CIA headquarters, getting Colin Powell ready for his presentation to the UN Security Council on Iraq's failure to disarm on February 5th, 2003. Mr. Goodman provided exhaustive detail on why the agency had failed again and again and again and will continue to fail if some future presidents in Congress do not step in and dramatically change the way CIA functions. And, uh, Mr. Goodman, what, what do you think would be the way the CIA functions? Well, you need to have a director of the CIA who understands the need for a moral compass in any secret organization, because any secret organization is a threat within a, a, a democracy. 
So you need restraints, you need oversight, uh, but you need an understanding of uh, what is uh, correct policy uh, and what is policy that is designed to advance uh, the international order to some degree and not to misuse the CIA in these various transgressions. And for the most part, you've had too many CIA directors. I cited the three that came from uh, the Hill who've been willing to politicize intelligence. Mm -hmm. Then you've had people like William Casey, who was a total ideologue who never should have been put in charge of the CIA uh, to begin with. Or someone like Robert Gates, who was a CIA director in uh, the early 1990s for George H.W. Bush for a very brief period because uh, Bill Clinton uh, uh, forced him to resign as soon as he was elected. But you haven't had, in the last 30 years, CIA directors of any real stature, of any real prominence. Uh, even the ones who possibly could have done a good job, I think, were tired bureaucrats. I would put Leon Panetta from... That's what I was wondering about him. In yeah. that category. He was a huge disappointment because Panetta is someone who served the country so well in the 70s and 80s and even the early 90s. But by the time he got to the CIA for Barack Obama, he was a tired uh, bureaucrat. Or you got someone like Jim Woolsey, uh, who was essentially a right-wing ideologue, even though nominally a member of the Democratic Party, but Bill Clinton that he needed someone on the right uh, to stand up to the military-industrial establishment. So you've never had that tough-minded individual uh, who I think was somewhat progressive in his ideas about American national security policy and who under really understood the value of strategic intelligence as opposed to strategic operations. And I thought the one place where the CIA has uh, never looked for a leader uh, is to the State Department, where you've had people who are experienced in policymaking and understand the need for good intelligence to support policy. And if you have a tough-minded person, uh, someone like um, Thomas Pickering, who almost mm -hmm. became the CIA director, but when he interviewed with Bill Clinton for the job, Clinton was so impressed with uh, Pickering that he made him the ambassador uh, to uh, Moscow instead. Uh, in the early days, uh, George Kennan was offered the position of CIA director, and he turned it down. I thought uh, George Kennan would have been a fascinating uh, early director of the CIA because he was interested in policy and support right. for policy and good intelligence analysis, and it would have sent the CIA in a direction of intelligence rather than in the direction of uh, operations where you had former CIA operatives like Richard Helms and William Coles, Colby uh, leading the CIA. So uh, working in as an analyst in the CIA, you're working with the highest level of government clearance, correct? Exactly. What is that called, by the way? Well, it's called code word clearances. Now, everyone has a top secret clearance, but then you have special categories of intelligence collection, the special categories from the National Security Agency, sort of the, the intercept capabilities, communications intercepts, um, signals intercepts. Then you have special uh, code word clearances uh, for satellite photography. Uh, these are extremely sensitive uh, uh, materials that go way beyond what the State Department refers to as confidential, secret, or top secret. This is where the real sensitive intelligence is. And in many cases, it's extremely valuable for understanding conflict in the third world or the possibility of uh, military confrontation uh, throughout the global community. 
this, this is what is fascinating about working in the intelligence community. And it was with a great reluctance that I, I left the CIA, being a news junkie to begin with, to have access to uh, this. The news before it happened. The photography, exactly. Uh, it makes it a lot easier to read the newspapers on a daily basis because you you know what's within the bounds of, of reason and what is uh, extremely unreasonable. So you have a way of separating news from so-called fake news. Um, <laughs> so when you when you leave that intelligence community, you you leave a lot behind. Well, one question I have though is, given that you have this this ultra high level of. of you know, top secret clearance, but you have to go home and have dinner with your family and you know, be a parent. You have friends that you get gather with, but you, you can't say anything about the world that dominates most of the hours of your day. Does that take well, a toll not, at all? Or No, not at all. I think it takes a toll on people who are operatives, who have uh, cover jobs and sometimes cover names who can't even reveal that they're actually with the Central Intelligence Agency. But for someone like myself, um, most of the years that I worked at the CIA, I also uh, lectured to academics. I taught um, courses on the CIA at American University. I taught at the University of Virginia. I taught at the University of uh, Connecticut when I took a sabbatical. And I had no trouble talking about international relations. What I didn't do talk about sources and methods. I didn't give away the names of people who provided sensitive uh, information. I didn't get into the methodology of, of certain operations when I had some uh, knowledge. But in terms of talking about international relations and talking about the, the blunders of uh, U.S. policymakers in the international community, I had no problem with that whatsoever. Now, let's go into a kind of a controversial topic that seems to be likely to resurface given you know, the way Donald Trump campaigned and his the number two person at the CIA, and that's the question of torture. And how what, what has been the CIA's role in torture? How has it affected its reputation? And what are your concerns about well, the current Trump administration? Well, the policies of torture and abuse during the war on terror were clearly unconscionable. Uh, and when the Senate Intelligence Committee was led by the Democrats, and when Senator Dianne Feinstein was in control, uh, she was responsible for a hugely important study on torture and abuse, thousands and thousands of pages based on um, factual uh, documents that describe the torture that was taking place that went way beyond what even the Justice Department uh, was willing um, to allow. But by appointing Mike Pompeo to be the CIA director, uh, the first act of Mike Pompeo's in terms of his leadership was to appoint a deputy by the name of Gina Haspel, uh, a name that's probably known to very few Americans, who was one of the directors of the torture and abuse program. So I can't think of a better way of creating great cynicism within the walls of the CIA than to take this period of torture and abuse in, instead of openly acknowledging it and having some kind of reconciliation discussion with regard to torture and abuse and the unconscionable uh, aspects of torture and abuse. Uh, Papeo turns around and names Gina Haspel, who sent the message actually to destroy the torture tapes because like most fascist-type activity, the CIA took pictures of themselves conducting this 
uh, torture. There were 92 hours of torture tapes that were destroyed, and it was Gina Haspel who sent the message out to places like Thailand and other places where there were secret prisons where the torture was committed. Uh, and now you have a new inspector general of the CIA, and I noticed in his testimony the subject of the torture and abuse memo came up, and he actually said he's never read it. So what you have now under the new chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Richard Burr, who never supported the work of Dianne Feinstein to begin with, he's recalled all of the copies of the torture and abuse report, including the two copies that were left at CIA with the director and with the inspector general. And this will be a document that will probably never see light of day. You know, it's bad enough that I've been waiting uh, 50 four years for the documents on the Kennedy assassination. I don't know how long we're going to have to wait to get this torture and abuse report. And now that you have a deputy named who was involved in torture and abuse and a president who believes in the uh, utility of torture and abuse, I think there's a very good chance we could restore these policies. We could resume these policies. And they're unconscionable policies that never should have been addressed or committed in the first place. And the issue of torture, you know, from Napoleon, generals like Napoleon, General Washington, even Colin Powell have said, you know, torture is doesn't yield anything good. It really doesn't give you any um, any demonstrable intelligence that you can rely upon. And more importantly, it just gives something to the uh, opponents to to energize them that, hey, these guys are committing torture. Well, it makes it a lot easier for insurgents or terrorists or uh, any kind of group that's hostile to the United States to conduct their own torture against Americans who um, come into their grasp. And again, if you talk to FBI interrogators, and they're the real professionals at this kind of interrogation, they will tell you that torture is uh, totally counterproductive, that the best way to get good information from individuals is to try to psychologically and substantively uh, co-opt them in some fashion. And torture uh, does just the opposite. It leads to a lot of wrong information and false information because people will say anything to stop that kind of torture and abuse in, in most cases. So it doesn't get you factual material. And there's no evidence whatsoever, uh, despite the uh, distorted movie uh, on this subject, uh, was it Zero Dark? Oh yeah, Zero Dark Thirty, yeah that created the impression that torture and abuse worked. That was a total lie. Uh, there was no evidence of any material that we ever gained from torture and abuse that had anything to do with stopping a terrorist attack or giving us real information on a terrorist attack. Uh, it was a policy that never should have been done, even if it had provided good intelligence. There should have been one adult in the room at uh, the CIA when they sat around uh, George Tenet's desk, he was the CIA director, and John McLaughlin, his uh, deputy. Someone should have said, you know, boss, this is really a bad idea, and it's not something the CIA should be doing. But we don't know of any individual. You know, that's where we needed a whistleblower. And the only person who talked about torture eventually was a gentleman by the name of John Kerry, who, who ended up in jail for several years. Uh, he was jailed because he gave the name of a clandestine operative to a journalist who never used the name in one of his articles. But the real reason the government went after him is because he was the first CIA person to talk about torture and abuse in a negative way. 
And so if, if torture has been shown to be counterproductive and never yield, really yield any actual intelligence, well, why is it that see, you have all these people pounding their chest saying, you know, we need to do torture? Well, to me, it's like civilians who've had no exposure to war who think that the use of uh, military force is a good idea. When every time we've gone to war, it was always the generals who gave the arguments for real uh, constraint. So again, it's people who are not exposed uh, to this kind of battlefield or to this kind of psychological terror uh, who think that you can really gather information this way. Uh, and I think a lot of it in terms of someone like Dick Cheney, who was a big supporter of torture, or Donald uh, Rumsfeld, it was really the arrogance of power. We have the means to conduct this kind of activity, and, and we're going to go to the mat. We're going to take the gloves off, in Dick Cheney's word, or go to the dark side, which is another expression that uh, I associate with Dick Cheney. Right. One of the real evil influences in this entire uh, period. But you had C people at the CIA like George Tennant and John McLaughlin uh, who were in a position to challenge it, uh, who were in a position to resign. Uh, but instead, they were too busy falsifying intelligence to get us into war uh, in Iraq uh, by saying, yes, it would be a slam dunk to create this intelligence. And then someone like John McLaughlin, who is used by MSNBC as a commentator on the CIA, which is uh, really an absurdity. He's the one who gave the uh, slam dunk briefing to the president and to the vice president, which had all sorts of false information on it, and Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, which didn't exist. We, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more on this topic. Um, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. The best gavel-to-gavel -gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and about whistleblowing with Melvin Goodman, who's the author of Whistleblower at the CIA, an insider's account of the politics of intelligence. And I have... You know, I've had a continuing discussion on torture. There's a couple of things. One is that the um, 
the irony is that we we we, we won the Soviet Union collapsed and you know, we were the victors, and here we were in the nineties and or two thousands in Iraq, we were using the Soviet interrogation manual, and you know that that in itself just it tells you something. We 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 were we we won because we were a better system. Yet here we were debasing ourselves, try acting. Just well, like they even had. worse, we were using the Freight Enhanced Interrogation Measures, which was out of the uh, the Third Reich book in terms of how they describe torture and abuse, enhanced interrogation uh, measures. And in terms of the uh, former Soviet Union, we located a lot of these secret prisons in places uh, such as Eastern Europe, where the Soviets had secret prisons during the worst days of the Cold War. So... We had no understanding of history. We had no understanding of the meaning of uh, these policies and no restrictions on the abhorrence of, of these policies. And when you think of the lawyers of the Justice Department who drew up uh, the, uh, the most damaging torture and abuse uh, memos, uh, one is now a professor of law at Berkeley, gentleman by the name John of yeah. And the other one has been rewarded with a judgeship out on the West Coast. Uh, yeah, Bybee. Yeah. Uh, and Bybee, exactly. Like, these people are rewarded. And someone like John Kiriakou, who talked about torture in a critical way, he goes to jail. There was actually a bar complaint made against um, you, and I, I don't know what came of it. I guess I could look it up, but uh, I'm not aware of it, really anything happening. I'm not aware of it. any real punishment. Yeah. Now, yeah, um... Faculty at Berkeley, I thought. <laughs> that is his punishment. As <laughs> 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 some some might argue. Um, now we we're now in this new age of the, the 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 Trump era, and this is weird relationship between the president and the intelligence community. And what does that mean for to have a president who is openly hostile to the findings of the intelligence community? Well, I've never seen a uh, president-elect, actually, before he was even inaugurated. He declared war on the CIA and compared the CIA organizations in Nazi Germany uh, before and during World War uh, II. And I think by sending Mike Pompeo out to the CIA, that was his way of punishing uh, the CIA. And frankly, I thought that, and this is a certain irony here, I thought that Trump... Uh, to really anger the CIA was going to release all of these uh, documents, including the ones that are going to be very embarrassing to the CIA. But he did listen to Mike Pompeo and gave the CIA six more months to obfuscate uh, this issue. But it creates serious problems in terms of a president having to rely on CIA intelligence in times of crisis. My own experience has been, you know, the CIA has... uh, created good intelligence. They've been responsible for bad intelligence. There have been intelligence failures. But when you're in a crisis or when you're leading up to a crisis, CIA intelligence is, to me, the best that's available in Washington. When you look at the 17 agencies of the, that make up the intelligence community, it's the CIA intelligence that I think is the most thorough, the most substantive, and often the most uh, objective. So at some point, if he's going to want to go to war, uh, against North Korea or against Iran. And frankly, I don't know why he would want to terminate the uh, nuclear accord with Iran unless he wants to justify a war at some point. He's going to need CIA intelligence. He's going to need to go to the Hill uh, with good intelligence. He uh, doesn't want to leave himself open to criticism from the intelligence 
uh, community. So it's, it's going to create a problem for him uh, and a political one. It's going to create a problem, a larger problem for the country uh, in terms of creating cynicism about the value of intelligence and the importance of intelligence collection and analysis. So I see nothing but uh, unfortunate consequences stemming from all of this. And what about the whole allegations concerning Soviet collusion? Do you do you think there's there there? You mean Trump collusion with the yeah uh, in the Russian campaign hacking? exactly? Um, certainly, the, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that says that people very close to Trump, including his own uh, prodigal son. son-in-law, yeah, uh, were involved in, in talks. Uh, with uh, Russians who were probably not in an official capacity, but had um, ties to Putin in some fashion or another. So this was true for the campaign director, Manafort. It was true for the son-in-law, Kushner, and it was certainly true for the son, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, So I think when there's that much smoke, there's probably some fire. I don't expect the Senate Judiciary Committee to get to this because that's become a politicized situation in which... Uh, the Republican directors of the Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee are acting as defense attorneys for the Republican president uh, in the White House. Whether Mueller uh, can get to the bottom of this, I don't know. But remember that these counterintelligence investigations go on forever. Iran-Contra was investigated for six years, and I still don't think it actually got it right. One of the reasons why we have this conspiratorial theory on the Kennedy assassination is because I thought the Warren Commission did an incomplete uh, a job and a lot of material was still covered up, and you know from 1963 and 9/11. I thought the investigation of 9/11 was inadequate. That the intelligence community did a, m- a far terrible job, far more terrible job than uh, we've ever been uh, told. So I'm I'm not optimistic. I think it's clear that the Russians did hack into the Democratic uh, National Committee. Um, I think it's clear that there was some relationship between Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and uh, Russian actors. Uh, whether they ever find real examples of collusion, I think uh, it's still too early to say. And one thing on the Kennedy uh, release of the Kennedy Papers, one thing I had heard was that what's being held back isn't necessarily any you know, smoking gun pointing to someone on the grassy knoll or somewhere else. What's, what's being held back is evidence that shows how the FBI basically muffed the investigation at the start, and particularly not protecting Oswald as they were going to the, you know, going to the police station or coming out of the police station. And um, my experience has been, and it took the CIA eleven months to review my whistleblower book, which was absurd when you when you think of the uh, uh, relative lack of sensitivity of materials in that book in terms of national security, uh, that what the CIA and the FBI are protecting are not real security secrets uh, that would be damaging to American national security. They're, they're saving their own ass. They're protecting themselves against political embarrassment. They're protecting themselves against the fact that they knew about Oswald, and they knew a lot about Oswald, and they had followed him in Mexico, and they knew about his discussions with the Cuban consulate and the Soviet embassy, and this material didn't get into the hands of the right people. So they're just protecting themselves. 
uh, from criticism about the inadequate work they did as intelligence collectors and investigators and, a law, and in the case of the FBI, a law enforcement agency. So there's nothing at stake here with regard to national insecurity. 54 years later, I don't think that case can be made. But there's plenty of room for political embarrassment, and this is what the CIA and the FBI are trying to avoid. That's, that's an interesting analysis. Now, you're going to be speaking at the Miami Book Fair on November 18th, and that will be Saturday the 18th at 1.30 in room 8203, Building 8 on the second floor. Uh, I haven't been there, so I can't tell you what it's like, but... Um, we thank Miami Book Fair for providing you to us. Now, uh, if people want to learn more about your book or you, um, how should they follow you? Well, MelvinGoodman.com has uh, where I'm appearing. It has all of my op-eds that I write for Counterpunch, uh, various articles that I do. And if they go to uh, the Center for International Policy website, CIPOnline.org, my writings also appear there. Uh, but the easy thing to do is, if you look at, the, I've written uh, six or seven books now on national security, and the titles sort of tell you where I'm coming from. Uh, Bush League Diplomacy was, was one, which was an indictment of neoconservative uh, national insecurity at the cost of American militarism, was an, an attempt to get the country to understand how much damage is being done with our huge defense budget. And of course, the CIA, the failure of intelligence decline and fall of the CIA in 2008, and this current one, whistleblower uh, at the CIA that just came out this year, I think uh, is a picture that I present uh, that I don't think you're going to find in uh, the mainstream media on a regular basis. Now, um, are you friends with Ray McGovern? Uh, Ray and I go back to the mid-1960s. Because uh, he's... CIA. He's, he's a prominent critic as well. He's a prominent critic. Critic, I, I don't agree with all of his criticism, and that's why <laughs> I've never joined uh, the organization. But that gives you an idea of uh, how cantankerous intelligence types are when it gets down to matters of uh, substance. Uh, and, um, and, and so are you working on any, last, any other book now? Yeah, I just signed another contract with City Lights uh, for a book that I'm calling... Uh, Trump's war on intelligence. Uh, but I'm not dealing with just the intelligence community. I, I think what Trump is fighting is a war against anyone who collects facts, anyone right. who's seeking knowledge, anyone who's looking for intelligence, whether it's in climate control and environmental issues or scientific issues uh, or traditional intelligence uh, issues. What's happening now is, uh, I think, disastrous for this country. And I think the problem is not so much Trump. I think he's a symptom of a greater crisis in this country where this incredible cynicism uh, led to 63 million votes for a man who's obviously, uh, as Corker, Senator Corker would say, not competent or qualified to be president of the United States. These are terrible times. Indeed. Um, and your, your publisher is City Lights. They're the ones that own the City Lights bookstore in San Francisco? Yes, it's a wonderful place. Um, to publish a book because you feel like you're part of the City Lights uh, family. They have a great history of producing, you know, very progressive books on uh, political issues, 
they did my book on national security. They did city. They did the whistleblower book, and they'll be doing the Trump's war on intelligence book. If you're in, in a year or so. and if you're in San Francisco, it's definitely a place you have to go. It's a, it's a famous bookstore. Well, I want to thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you, and best of luck to you at the Miami Book Fair. I look forward to your next work. And Melvin Goodman, author of Whistleblower to CIA, an insider's account of the politics of intelligence. Thanks again. Thank you for the opportunity. And that's all we have for today. This is Bennett Kelly. Be sure to check out our show notes with information on Mr. Goodman and the book um, at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. In addition, follow us on Twitter at CyberLawRadio and check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. We're a full-service internet law firm. Until next week, this is Bennett Kelly from Santa Monica saying have a great week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.